Hey, I'm Matt Brown. I'm a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, the founder of Global Progress, and a co-founder of the Recovery Project. Welcome. This is a podcast recording of day one from the Recovery Summit, focused on the challenge ahead and shaping a progressive recovery from COVID-19. I hope you enjoy the discussion. We have a tradition at the sort of Global Progress Canada 2020 gatherings of always beginning our discussions uh, founded in in some facts, in some opinions uh, that have been sought from uh, across the globe. So why we are going to focus on the recovery ideas that drive the recovery and how we can build a political coalition to help advance and advocate for those ideas. What we want to do is we want to found that discussion. Uh, in a debate about what the public feel, what they feel they have learned about themselves, about their societies, their economies, and their democracies from this crisis, uh, and use that as a basis to understand what they hope and expect their political leaders uh, and their policymakers to do as we look to build back better, to recover uh, from this crisis. So uh, I can't think of a better uh, person to help us uh, lead us through that discussion, or at least to to start that discussion, than Tim Dixon, who is one of the co-founders of More in Common. Uh, More in Common, uh, many of you may know, is an organisation that's very dear to my heart. It was founded after the uh, the brutal murder uh, of Joe Cox, a British MP who grew up uh, in Yorkshire, uh, near myself. And the term More in Common is based around her uh, her opening address to the UK Parliament in which she said that we have far more in common than that which divides us. I think that is a, a great motto, a great, uh, a great starting point for this conversation. And so I'm delighted that, that Tim uh, uh, has joined us. Those of you familiar to Global Progress Debates will also be familiar with Tim. Uh, he is uh, a longtime uh, partner in a number of our events and, and many of our discussions. Uh, he has served in a variety of different roles. Uh, he was an advisor uh, to a number of Australian prime ministers. He trained as a lawyer. Uh, he started a publishing house. He was the founder of uh, Purpose uh, Europe and helped build a number of organizations that worked on issues dealing on everything from Syria to civic engagement uh, and refugees. Uh, and yeah, I also consider him a personal friend. Tim is, of course, now the co-founder uh, of More in Common, and he will talk to us about a, a recent survey that they have conducted across seven countries, looking at how people uh, have responded to COVID, what they felt uh, they have learned about themselves, their societies and their economies, and what they hope uh, to see coming out of this crisis. So, Tim, uh, I believe you're also in London. Thank you very much for joining us, uh, and the floor is yours. Thanks very much, Matt, and uh, thanks, Alex, um, and uh, thanks for bringing us together for the the recovery summit. It's um, it's not as exciting sitting in my living room than than being in Montreal, but I think one upside of this format is obviously our ability to reach much larger audiences than what we have uh, in the past with um, sort of closed door conferences. And so I think this is a great way of taking advantage of the opportunity to to open up um, our conversation. So thanks to the team at uh, Canada 2020, at Global Progress and at uh, IFSD. Um, so our goal in this session is in a, over a few moments to set a context for the conversation about recovery in the future um, that'll take place over uh, the, the, the coming sessions. Um, and what I would like to do is provide some insights on a range of different issues around the directions of public opinions and public attitudes for these very strange times that we live in. 
I'm going to provide a sneak peek at findings of a major study that More in Common is releasing on Thursday. Um, and just by way of 60-second explanation, building on what Mac said, our work, More in Common, it's an organisation that has teams in four of the largest Western democracies uh, in the US, UK, France and Germany. Our work is focused on uniting divided societies um, and understanding the forces that drive democratic societies apart and how we can bring them back together. And the name More in Common, as Matt mentioned, comes from Joe Cox, um, the murdered British Labour MP. So we do a lot of work on the psychology of populations. We publish a lot of research. Um, we have around 60 partnerships with different institutions to bring those insights to life. Um, we're a nonpartisan organization, though my own background, is, as uh, Matt has mentioned, is working on progressive campaigns across several countries and for some years in the prime minister's office. So what we're gonna pull out is insights that are most useful for progressives in terms of policy, in terms of communications. And so we'll kick off with the, uh, the slide here that gives us an outline of the uh, issues that I'm going to run through, which is sort of 10, 10 issues. Uh, uh, but broadly, this study that's being released on Thursday uh, and what's at the heart of our work is seeking to answer the question of how do we build resilience to the threats to democracy in this moment? How do we make our democracies work better? Um, how do we restore public trust and confidence and build resilience to the threats against us? And I'm going to go through these 10 points here just to sort of to bring out some key elements um, of the, the findings that we'll be sharing publicly on Thursday. Um, it's a study of 14,000 people across seven countries, the US, UK, Germany, France, Italy, the Netherlands, Poland, um, and it's going to be released in all of the languages, so French, German, Italian, Polish and Dutch uh, later this week as well as English. And our goal with the study is really to identify how are our societies changing, how are public attitudes changing um, in response to COVID six months um, down now as we are from the, the beginning of the lockdown or quarantine or shelter in place period. So it's getting a sense of the overall direction of public opinion post COVID, uh, whether the public has an appetite for change, are people more desperate just to return to the way things were before the, the pandemic? Um, have public attitudes towards government change, towards policy priorities, towards policy options. Um, and a, a good part of our work is around how do we understand and counter the appeal of us versus them political narratives. Uh, alongside that is looking at what are the common ground strategies that can resist division. So we're playing close attention to issues such as immigration, diversity, national identity, climate change, the economy, all issues that in a sense have the potential to, to either unite us or to divide us. So let's jump in. Where has COVID uh, left us? Six months in from the uh, the beginning of the lockdown period. It's been a time, uh, I guess, where there's a sense of, of unreality about this moment because many people are only just beginning to uh, experience the, uh, the consequences in terms of the economic consequences um, of the uh, pandemic as the wage subsidy schemes taper off in various countries. But what you can see here is that there's very high levels of anxiety about the future, really resulting from three sources of uncertainty. The first is health uh, around the second wave of infections and lockdowns. Now, these, the research was undertaken a few weeks before the, um, the, the last three weeks where we've seen the, the big surge in cases in many European countries. And it reflects the overall uh, finding that we have that the, um, the 
concern in the public is much more around things moving too fast, the, the sort of relaxation of restrictions moving too fast than moving too slowly, even though often you hear the opposite um, in media reports. Secondly, there's a lot of concern about the economic fallout, the um, consequences individually is generally much smaller than the consequences people perceive for the, the whole economy, but the fear of a real a major uh, recession or depression that could last a long period of time. And the fear also of social division and political instability, which is particularly pronounced in the US. And you can see why there's so much anxiety and anger in the United States, because it's such a bad picture on all three fronts, health, economy and division. Um, so notice there is some nuance here as well. For example, the Italians are more concerned about the economic outlook, the Americans and French about division, British, Italians and Americans about the further ways of COVID. So there is a sort of a nuance as well as just high levels of anxiety across the board. Let's jump into um, one other aspect just in the United States while we're talking about the, the issues of concern and division. In the US, there's anxiety about the conduct of the election, which is another layer of concern on top of those other really profound concerns uh, about where things are going. We've been running a day-to-day -day panel in the US since April, where we have a 100 people representative group of Americans, and we ask them about all sorts of issues about their lives, uh, issues that are going on in public debates, some politics, some social issues, to get us a, a sense of how their lives are, shaped, uh, are changing from day to day and how they're feeling. And the sense of exhaustion around uh, division, the sense of uncertainty about the election is so palpable. There was a, um, a few weeks ago, a young Republican woman from Wyoming who articulated this, I think, better than um, anybody else that I've, I've seen in the group, when she said in, in her words, almost every single system we have in America is broken. Healthcare, education, justice. I have no faith in our election process. It feels like I'm in the beginning chapters of a dystopian novel. And that is true of many people in America. We particularly focus on not just those loud voices that we hear most on social media, but what we call the exhausted majority that you can see in the, the colour falls that are breakdown um, on the right of the slide here. And they're particularly important because they don't have a tribal view of things, but they're, they're just incredibly anxious about um, current conditions and just exhausted by particularly the division. And I think that, that it's a reflection that the, the messaging of the Biden campaign speaks very much to that sentiment that we've been picking up over the last couple of years, really, and that's very cute this year. Uh, but a couple more dimensions to this. Two thirds of Americans believe that foreign interference is likely in that election, in the election. And that's quite widely held, that belief. But polarization influences everyone's perceptions. So the concern is about half among the conservative groups than, than it is in the rest of the population. And like many other issues, there's strong polarisation on this issue. So, um, for example, when we've got this breakdown here of the, the seven groups, the seven segments that in the Hidden Tribes work that we've done in the US, we've found this very predictive of where people stand on such a wide range of issues over the past two years since we did this breakdown. It provides lots of insights. Um, but what's particularly significant is that you know, election interference and the conduct of the election just falls into exactly the same patterns where you've got 95% concern among progressive activists and traditional liberals, and only a third as much, 30% um, levels of concern uh, in the, uh, the conservative groups. But again, you that's not the, the only story. It's not a 50-50 story. You've got the, the middle exhausted majority groups who do have high levels of concern. Interestingly, the, the highest level of concern um, that is, is actually around social media interference. So if we look at the next slide, these findings are actually not from the, what we're releasing this week. It's a different 
different project where we're, we're, we'll be releasing findings uh, next month around election integrity. But it's striking here, the single strongest fear among Americans relate, relating to the election is that social media is going to be used to turn us against each other. And while it's strong among progressives, it's a concern that's shared by four and five conservatives as well. And there's more, that's more evidence of the anxiety in the country and the extent of division. The, um, it was recently, I think last week it was in Florida, there was a, um, a survey by a Democratic consultant that showed that division is the number one concern of voters in Florida. So that tells us something about the partisan division over the threat of foreign interference, but also you've got the hacking of voting systems, providing intelligence to election campaigns, the, the issues that the president's repeatedly underplayed where that polarisation comes through again. Next, looking on the shifts that we're picking up in conversations uh, as a result of uh, COVID, it's striking that people generally feel that we have become more concerned about each other um, out of this period. And that's one of the ways in which I think the uh, COVID has opened up a different environment to which progressive values can really speak. It's especially true in the United Kingdom, where there's been a very strong surge of mutual aid efforts and voluntary work, 53% feeling that we've become more concerned about each other, independent of the fact that there's actually quite a strong judgment on the performance of the government. So this is a, there's an interesting dimension here where people are thinking about their societies in ways that aren't just tied to the way that they're seeing their, their politics or their governments sort of play out. Only in the United States are there as many people who think that our concern for each other has worsened as much as it's improved. There's also greater awareness of the living conditions of other people, of inequality, the lives of fellow citizens. That's due not just to COVID-19, I think it's also the impact of the movements around black lives and racial justice. Around three in five people say that, yes, I'm more aware of other people's lives uh, now. And that's obviously in part about health workers and essential workers who had to go into work and who were exposed to the virus when the rest of us were in lockdown. Um, but it's also just a more general impact of thinking about how people catch the virus, people living in more crowded conditions, people not suddenly not having money for food, having to look after their family. And it also, you see on the right here, this seems to have reinforced a basic message of humanity that as humans, we're fundamentally the same no matter we, where we are from. And just as a sort of side observation, we find repeatedly that speaking about the commonality, the similarity between us is so much more powerful and has so much more support than always emphasizing diversity and difference between different groups within society. Three quarters of people everywhere um, agree with that sentiment. But there's also a sense of frustration um, with the failure of governments. The different experiences with COVID-19 have led to very different uh, perceptions in the public mood across countries. So German and Dutch populations have been left with a real sense of pride in their country's management of the crisis. It's a very different situation in the US, UK, France and Poland. There's disappointment, there's frustration. Italy is interesting and is a more mixed picture, but I think that, you know, comes out and is most striking about this and with a lot of it, a lot of the conclusions from a, the seven country study is just the weakness of the position that the United States is in. If we look at public confidence in the um, in government's ability to tackle challenges, um, it's really taken a battering, both in terms of our trust in others, our trust in government, although again it's very different for countries um, like Germany and the Netherlands. Trust has eroded because of the perception of incompetence, the perception of secrecy, media distortions, 
Um, and one consequence of this, which uh, we've found in asking about whether people will take a vaccine, is that one in three people say they wouldn't get a vaccine even if it becomes available. And that this issue of declining trust in the capability of governments, it's not just about the specific government in power, it's also a, a question about whether governments are able to deliver on big changes and big systems. And that's why, from a progressive perspective, I think it's really important to look at policies that don't rely on trust in the power of big government, because that's really not where people are at. They have more faith at the moment, especially in local communities. So where policies can come through, can be more localised, can come through people in the institutions that people trust more, um, they're likely to resonate more because there's this deep scepticism about government's ability to deliver change, but there's more confidence at the local level, as we'll see in a moment. In terms of looking at the performance of um, how governments rank, um, you can see that on competence and, fa and fairness, there's quite a spread here. Um, the US ranks worse, both incompetent and unfair. Um, the German and Dutch governments uh, rank well. Perhaps the most interesting nuance here is the UK, which is ranked as a very incompetent government, but not especially unfair, which is a classic piece of British nuance, I think, in the perception of, uh, of government. There isn't a blame about motivation. There's just a sense that, yeah, most so many things have gone wrong. But more broadly, in terms of the sentiment around the uh, the overall story of change, we asked, we wanted to get a sense of whether the public mood is, this is a time for big change, uh, to make significant changes to, to fix things, or is there a feeling that there's so much anxiety and uncertainty that people just want things to go back to normal? And the answer to that is that the perception is on balance, more towards wanting change, but it is more pronounced in countries which have struggled with the pandemic um, and it's weaker in countries that have done well. And the gap here isn't huge. It's about 55, 45 overall between across all countries. I don't think it's a desire for a sort of big visionary optimistic change. It's a bit more grim in a sense. It's a sense of well, the things that are broken we need to fix and that needs to start with our health system and then it needs to go to jobs. Um, and I think it's quite possible, too, that this sentiment could shift in the other direction. It could be more of a back to normal, um, back to how things were, back to a sense of security, if change is not framed in a way that has broad appeal. That is, if it only speaks to a limited number of, sort of segments of the population. Uh, one other thing to note here is that people want change. But most people don't actually believe that change is going to happen, especially not in France, where there's a real desire for change of great scepticism that anything is going to be different. Um, the only country which actually believes a majority, where a majority believe significant change is going to ha happen is actually the United States, which is interesting and perhaps good news, uh, but maybe also a reflection that people struggle to imagine that things could actually be worse. If we look at people's priorities for the future, um, this is a sort of complex picture and um, there's, I, I won't go into the detail, but just to say in short that the, the general priorities that emerge across countries is around health, jobs and climate uh, and the various different measures that can be taken to support families, small businesses, etc. and the economic fallout. In the US, it's a different picture. In all of our countries, we've asked people about their priorities for the future, but outside of the, the United States, the answers are clearer. In the US, Free and fair elections rank as the second most important, but the, the story about people's priorities is most of all a story of just real polarisation, a very different set of issues for people on the conservative end towards um, to people on the sort of liberal and progressive end. 
perhaps the most interesting finding about priorities that that came through um, from our research, we'd actually picked it up not long after the, the period of quarantine had started, is that people have seen a connection between climate and the experience of nature in lockdown, that they have seen that there is real human agency, that the way that we behave as humans has a real impact on, on our environment and the reduction in pollution, the return of nature has translated into people saying, we really need to do more um, on uh, climate. We And not, not just we need to, but we, we can, it can make a difference. And there is a sense of people not wanting to return to how things were in a very specific way around being more connected to nature and not just something as well that you pick up in sort of middle class or upper middle class segments. We've been doing this with uh, disengaged segments in France, for example, and this is really quite interesting nuanced change that has taken place around feeling more connected to, to nature. And that translates as well into people's perceptions of um, environmental policy. Uh, that people don't think their governments are doing enough on the environment. Very few people think that their governments are actually doing too much. There's surprisingly positive findings in terms of showing that the identity wars are not undermining support for action on the environment or climate in Europe. But this is something that we're doing a lot of work on right now around language, around talking about the environment, nature, countryside, etc., in ways that have broad appeal and don't just project a set of more liberal values that may not be shared by um, the whole of populations. But certainly it's a more optimistic picture in European countries that climate is the, the efforts to bring climate into identity wars is not working, is not penetrating all that far. Whereas, of course, that's very well established in the US. That said, even in the United States, there is majority support for the, the Green New Deal. Um, it's uh, only 54%, so it's only just above um, uh, the 50%, but it's striking. Uh, but much higher levels of support, uh, mostly in the 70s uh, in Europe. And that makes sense then of the way in which the bailout funds that the European Commission has announced are going to be focused on digitalisation and on, 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 on decarbonising economies. When we look at the priorities for bailout policies, uh, for the government aid to uh, businesses, it's very striking how strongly the public expects that there needs to be something in return. Uh, if governments are giving money, then they need to get something in, something back. And so we've asked this question about uh, action on uh, fair wages for essential workers, um, on uh, onshoring jobs, on capping CEO salaries, uh, on reducing carbon emissions, and on uh, paying tax locally, paying your fair taxes, not using tax havens. And there is almost unanimous support for um, almost all of those policies, particularly high on the uh, fair wages and the issue of tax havens. Uh, and I think that gives us some insight into where there is opportunity for policy change, particularly in connection with um, the, uh, the way in which we approach the recovery period. Another dimension of the uh, findings that we've seen both in our uh, focus group conversations and in the uh, the large-scale qu uh, quantitative research is just how much people have been thinking more about their local community through the experience of the pandemic. They're much more optimistic about what they've seen locally than national. It's particularly pronounced in the US and you can see here twice as much pride in what has, they've seen locally than what they've seen nationally. 
Um, but there's also that that ge general sort of theme of localism we've found emerge um, in all of our countries, even in countries where the national effort has been relatively successful in its response. And I think that this is a time for a, a rethinking and a rebalancing of the role that uh, centralised power versus sort of localised power um, can take place and thinking of democratising um, experiments at that local level. That sense of localism also translates into the way people think that money should be spent. So we asked specifically about whether COVID recovery funds, such as for job creation, should go through national governments or local governments, or it should be through a shared effort. And the answer in every country is a shared effort. But local governments more trusted than national government in every single country except for the Netherlands. That's also reflected here in the uh, measures of trust in national governments and local governments. Um, and the, the finding here is that there has been a real loss of confidence overall in the perform in, in national governments through the experience of the, the pandemic. And I think it's worth surfacing this as a challenge for governments that want to deliver on an ambitious agenda. Uh, the, the good news here is that trust in local governments has not been as starkly affected. And that means that there is more opportunity for innovation. And of course, that's also relevant in many countries where progressive governments are not in power nationally and have little prospect nationally, but where they may be able to uh, win at a localised or a state or provincial level. Another dimension that's uh, interesting in the findings that sort of belongs to a very specific uh, uh, set of circumstances of the global pandemic is whether people have turned inwards uh, or outwards in the, with the experience of the pandemic. Have these failures of leadership turned them away from cooperation, international cooperation, uh, and towards greater nativism or not? And the answer seems to be no. The sentiment that we have now is an unusual combination of more support for multilateralism, a sense that we need more international cooperation, about 70% support for that approach, alongside support for strong border controls and keeping immigration at low levels. So this is an unusual combination. It doesn't sort of fit into traditional way in which we might think about internationalism. People think that go it alone is not a smart approach, uh, but at the same time, they feel much safer when there is strong control on borders because the lens through which they're seeing everything right now is a public health lens. There is also, I don't mention it in the slides here, but there is a disappointment with the European Union, uh, particularly in the case of uh, the Italy and a real anger about the performance of the, the EU, its failure to help in the early stages of the pandemic. But majorities still see stronger European Union action as the way out of the crisis, ranging from about 60 to 75% across countries. In contrast, it's not a time for pushing for immigration reforms or for opening up of borders. Immigration is not being seen through the lens of xenophobia, but rather through the lens of the pandemic uh, and the safety for a local population. We've seen this in the qualitative research where we've talked to people where they say, we need to do more to protect uh, migrant populations within our country uh, because they are more vulnerable. At the same time, they say, but we absolutely need to keep control, close our borders. This is not a time where it's safe for people to be moving across borders. So it's a different, again, it's different from a sort of open, closed value set. Um, on the positive side, migrants are not being blamed for the spread of the virus. I haven't included the slides here, but we've asked a lot of questions around blame and culpability because we want this research to serve as a sort of early warning system on what narratives might take hold, divisive narratives. Right now, migrants are not being blamed, a little bit in Italy, but besides that, that sort of narrative isn't taking hold. But equally, people are very nervous about the prospect of increasing migration. Uh, 
Last thing that we'll, I want to do is just to touch on some of the dangers around the uh, current environment that we're in. The experience of the global financial crisis in 2008 showed us that the, the backlash that can take place doesn't come immediately around a crisis. It often emerges over a period of years afterwards, but we need to be much more attentive than we were uh, 12 years ago to that prospect of different insurgent forces, anti-democratic forces rising up, uh, spreading blame narratives, dividing societies. Uh, and this is something that we particularly focus on through the lens of the segments of population, because we have identified with Moran Commons' work in a, in a series of our national studies, the, the, the group of people that we call invisibles, a sort of disengaged population, generally around 30, 40% of the voting population that's disengaged. And that has a particular set of characteristics. It doesn't sort of fit into an easy political category of left or right. They are more distinguished by their attitude towards society, very low levels of trust, um, not really having a strong political identity. Uh, often personally, they're quite lonely. They have a lack of belonging. They have a sense of exclusion. They don't feel representative, represented. They're not hopeful about politics. Uh, they, are, they tend to be younger, although they have an age spread, particularly really sort of under 40s. Uh, they're less politically attached. Very different. And in fact, there's more young people in this group than there are young people who sort of believe in the support, the progressive, um, more activist voices that often we, we see in media. And there's a real crisis emerging, I think, through that age cohort in many countries where they just have a less faith in democracy, less faith in the system. What this research shows here um, is that the in France, we, we, we've identified the identitarian group, uh, and the which is the sort of the group that most supports the, the far right. Uh, we have ad identified a disengaged group called the Left Behind, who sort of increasingly resemble the behaviour and the beliefs of the identitarians, with very low levels of trust, a sense of deep disappointment in the system. And that's very dangerous because where you see the disengaged groups aligning to the identitarian or, or sort of far right supporting groups, you're looking at a quite significant proportion of the population being willing to support an insurgent. It may not be in the case of France, for example, it may not be uh, the national rally. It may be some sort of uh, five star movement equivalent, some form of insurgent populism. But I just think this, this underlying lack of faith in the system um, and in democracy is a real concern. So that's, that gives some perspective on where the, what the picture is like in France. We can also see this the same picture um, in Germany. And the picture here is that we, we where we look at uh, the, the different segments within Germany, we find that there's a group that feels more on its own, um, more isolated and distant and distrustful of the, of the system. Um, one group called the Angry, which is the sort of the base of support for the alternative for Germany uh, group. But then the, uh, the group that we call the, the Disillusion is increasingly close to the, the group, the, the Angry group. Um, and again, when you put those groups together, you have around a third of the population. So they resemble in terms of their views of uh, a sense of low trust in government. They don't think that people care about them. Uh, just 43% faith compared to 38% of the Angry. Um, 65 percent, which jump to the next one, um, the disillusioned don't believe politicians care about people like them, which is not very different from the, the 83 percent view of the angry. Uh, they think things are unfair. So out of all of that, those, those findings in Germany, um, the warning here is that there is a real threat of insurgency, even in countries actually that have done very well uh, in the handling of the pandemic. 
Uh, and that's why we believe there's a real need for us to do all we can to be building cohesion and solidarity in a time of profound uncertainty. But at that point, I'll pass it back to Matt. Thank you very much, uh, Tim. That was uh, a very comprehensive and, and wide-ranging uh, discussion uh, uh, and presentation helping us start off uh, our, our discussions uh, for today. Uh, I think, you know, interestingly, what you see there is some cause for optimism, a sense that there is a desire for change, but also you quite clearly uh, point to some apparent dangers in some country that this may not lead in a progressive direction, but actually provide a window of opportunity amongst those that are frustrated or, or increasingly angry with the system to, to actually be a bit more of a reactionary change. So I think a cause for a cause for caution as well as some, some hope there. So thanks. We're going to now uh, start the, uh, the follow-up panel. Uh, you've given us uh, so, some great data to base that on. Uh, and this panel, uh, we'll be looking to see how we can ensure that we shape a progressive response to the recovery. So Tim will now be joined uh, by uh, two, two colleagues from North America. The first is Nira Tandon, who many of you may know is the president and CEO of the Center for American Progress. Nira is a, a longtime democratic strategist and advocate. Uh, she worked at the Department of Health and Human Services uh, uh, on the Obamacare bill. She worked for, uh, previously for Hillary Clinton and has and advised uh, a number of presidents, including President Barack Obama. Uh, Nira is joining us from Washington. Uh, Nira, if you can uh, turn on your camera and audio, that would be wonderful. And then in Ottawa, we are also joined by uh, Jerry Butts. Jerry Butts is the vice chairman of the Eurasia Group. Eurasia is a uh, geopolitical uh, political risk management uh, company. Jerry advises Fortune 500 companies there on uh, global trends and political risk. Uh, as many of you know, he has also been the principal secretary to the Prime Minister of Canada uh, and to the Premier of Ontario. And prior to that, he was the president of the World Wildlife Foundation uh, Canada. So Jerry, also welcome. For those of you who don't follow Jerry on Twitter as well, it's also worth mentioning that he is a keen Cape Bretoner and will often mention that on, on his tweets. So Nira, Jerry, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Unfortunately, Astrid, Panazayan, who is due to join us from Paris, uh, who is the, one of the co-founders of our marsh, has been withheld, but we do hope that she'll be able to join us uh, later in the, the summit program later in the week. So, look, uh, I'm going to start by uh, coming to you, Nira, if I may, uh, although you, I see you've just stood up, um, but Nira's not on. Okay, so... Uh, <laughs> Let me uh, <laughs> let me come then to uh, uh, to Jerry. Uh, given that Nero has left, uh, this is not the uh, the uh, choreography that we'd agreed. But Jerry, um, you know, you will have seen through uh, some of the data presented um, uh, by Tim, uh, although that wasn't referencing Canada. That there's both cause for optimism, but there's a sense in which many people still feel that. Uh, we are a long way out uh, from sort of recovery, that the pandemic uh, and the economic, social, as well as the, the public health consequences have quite quite a way to run uh, ahead still. So I wondered if you'd be willing to share with us your views on, uh, on how you see this uh, evolving, how the Canadians uh, see the current situation and uh, and what you think the, the sort of goal should be as we try and forge a progressive response in Canada. Gary, welcome. Sure, thanks very much, Matt. And I see Nira up there now, so I'll wave to her. It's good to see Nira. Um, 
and uh, good luck in all your efforts in the next few months. Um, I would make a couple of points off the top that we can then come back to, and I'll share a bit of research that uh, we're doing right now. So it's hot off the press for Canada 2020. The first point that's probably the most important one is um, to understand and really appreciate the level of anxiety that people are going through, right? In particular, in the progressive movement where we depend on the support of uh, the broad middle class and regular people, and when we keep that support, we form governments, and when we don't, we lose governments. It's really important to emphasize uh, what we're doing and whom we are doing it for rather than celebrate the fact that we are doing it. So as uh, someone put it to me, a colleague in the UK put it to me uh, on the weekend, not to name names, Matt, we have to uh, emphasize the object in the sentence, not the subject in the sentence. So what is going through people's minds? Here in Canada, and if we can share this slide, um, I don't know if people can see that now, Matt. Okay, terrific. So this is hot off the press. This is research we're doing to be shared in a broader study for Canada 2020 sometime in the next few weeks. Um, we've been trying to get after where Canadians self-assess their position in the midst of this crisis. So we came up with this um, lovely visual where we uh, describe the beginning of the crisis as dusk. Who tell us where they believe they were personally and their country was uh, coming through that crisis, the, coming through the pandemic. So you, if you go to the next slide, you'll see where people think we are. Sorry, is my uh, connection breaking up? You're fine now. Okay. If we could go to the next slide, Alex. Okay, great. So as you can see, despite um, a lot of opinion leader commentary, uh, the Canadian public generally thinks we're right smack in the dab in the middle of this thing. I saw other research shared this morning from Abacus that had shared that had a similar assessment and even indicated that people's assessment of being in the middle of the crisis or the worst is yet to come, I think was the phraseology they used, um, <coughs> has ticked up since the spring. So why is this an important uh, ground to build out from? Um, to put it, uh, you know, diplomatically, I think that there, in any crisis situation, uh, people will repurpose their pet projects as uh, urgent and necessary responses to the crisis at, of the moment, the crisis at hand. And it's vitally important that when people are feeling as anxious as they're feeling right now, we start the solutions from where they are and build up from there and not arrive in the middle of their anxiety with a pre-existing solution that was developed and determined before the, the crisis that has arisen. Um, all that said, I think it's really important in particular, uh, this is something that, that countries uh, all over the wor world are dealing with and it's certainly something that, that Eurasia Group were working with clients on various macro trends that are affecting their investments and their businesses. But um, in particular in Canada, and I'll get into these a bit later in the panel discussion, the three um, major macro trends that we need to keep our eye on are one, a, a, an acceleration of uh, inequality and unfairness in the global economy. 
Um, we have been saying since the beginning of this crisis that it's not reversing trends, it's acting as an accelerant for pre-existing trends. You've even seen some people start to talk about a K-shaped recovery where the top end of the economy is taking off and barely feeling the crisis and the bottom end of the economy is, uh, the bottom half of the economy is feeling it uh, um, uh, in a uniquely negative way. The second, of course, is the energy transition and climate change. Uh, it's remarkable what's happened to conventional energy markets since the beginning of the crisis. Uh, one of the most important uh, trends here for Canada is uh, NERA's party's positioning on climate change going into this campaign. The Biden policy, $2 trillion to decarbonize the American electricity sector, is something that would have been unthinkable for the nominee of either major party as recently as one cycle ago. And I think that's not just a reflection of strong advocacy work in the grassroots of the Democratic Party and among organizations like the Sunrise Movement. It shows that there's just a radical reordering of facts on the ground going on in the United States. As we speak uh, on this panel, there are five, five uh, cyclones in the Atlantic Basin and most of the West Coast of the United States is suffering uh, air quality levels from historic forest fires that they've never seen. I think yesterday Vancouver was one of the top three, uh, had one of the, was one of the three cities with the worst air quality in the world. And people are, of course, not stupid. I'm a long, uh, those of you who know me know I'm a subscriber to the school of politics that uh, what I call the PANS school of politics, people are not stupid. And they're reacting to what they see around them, um, no matter how uh, much money is spent to convince them otherwise. And then, of course, the last trend for Canada is what exactly is happening in the United States near. And I look forward to your reflections on that. I think that's a, um, a really important trend in and of itself. But within nested within that trend is, of course, the uh, decoupling of the U.S.-China relationship and um, a radical reordering of trade patterns associated with that. So, you know, when I sit back and reflect on this, I think that any of these three trends, had they been happening on their own, would have... Uh, presented enormous challenges for public policymakers. Uh, the fact that they are all three happening at the same time and at a velocity approaching terminal velocity uh, presents a really unique and challenging time to be making policy. So I think the most important thing when you find yourself in the midst of that is to deeply understand what people are going through and build the policy apparatus that you want to help them out from their experiences. And uh, the experience of Canadians in, in, in particular, but also uh, Europeans, Americans, um, is one of profound anxiety and uncertainty about the future. Uh, now is the time to be delivering uh, security, uh, clarity, and both liquidity support in the short term for households and long term uh, uh, planning support to manage through these big macro trends. Uh, and so much depends on what happens in the United States. And Nira, that's a good uh, pass over to you. Uh, thank you very much, Jerry, and, uh, for that view from Ottawa. And uh, I mean, yeah, it's clear, Nira, that um, 
the fate of uh, much more than the United States rests on what's likely to happen over the next few months in, uh, in, in your election. We feel it in London, people feel it in Canberra and Auckland, they feel it in Paris, Berlin, as much as they do in Ottawa. So uh, please, I'll cede the floor to you now to share your views on on where you think the political and policy debate is going in the United States and uh, what hope progressives should have over the next few months. Thanks for right, Well, I, re I really appreciate, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate this forum. And over the last several years as we've uh, struggled in the United States with, uh, you know, essentially an authoritarian uh, right-wing populist as president, it's been really helpful for us to learn from other countries, even though we uh, daily experience the uniqueness of uh, the Trump administration. And so um, I actually just really appreciate the data uh, and uh, commentary so far. I'd say, I think it really, um, I think it really dovetails well uh, with not just the data that we have on the United States, but the the campaigns, uh, the campaign, the Biden campaign as it's being waged right now. And I, I think the the most important issue for progressives going forward, and I, I really take this point about where the data is that was uh, laid out is um, you know I do think the 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 virus is a, a national uh, is a global disaster. Each country is experiencing it nationally, but it is a unique form of national disaster. And in in my view, I think this goes to a specific set of progressive policies. And what I mean by that is. a pandemic, unlike the coronavirus, unlike uh, uh, an economic crisis or even a national disaster crisis is an issue in which the decisions of individuals affect everybody else. And I mean, if just as an example, other countries with stronger welfare states uh, don't have to face these choices, but in the United States where we don't have universal paid leave and we don't have universal sick days, you know, people deciding when they're not feeling well to go to work can infect large groups of people. And so I think this has really shifted the perspective on why we need an effective governmental response. And uh, again, that's also happening at the, at the same time where we have the most ineffective government response and people are seeing the results. So I think that this actually, you know, um, spells two things, one for the election and one for governing. For the election, I think it means, and you see this in the trend lines, people are much more open to a governmental response. I take the 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 caution about a federal government response versus a local government response, but given where the federal government has been, that is highly rational for voters right now because the federal government has fundamentally failed. Going forward, I think this is a real question for, or real a real challenge and opportunity for, it, you know, if there is a Biden administration. I'll get to how we get there in a minute. But if there is a Biden administration, I think this is a once in a generational opportunity for progressives to prove that government can work through an effective strategy to fight the virus, and the conditions are such that we could really end the Reagan era dominance, 
dominant view that the federal government is always a problem and never an aid. That that view has shifted over several the last several years. A majority of Americans and other polling that's been taking place annually over the last four or five years want a stronger federal government response to the nation's problems over wanting a weaker one. But this is the virus plus those underlying trends, I think, provide a real opportunity for the uh, for a Biden administration, which in which I'm knocking on wood. But how do we get to the Biden administration? <laughs> I think this obviously uh, if if people in uh, Berlin and Ottawa are concerned about this election, I can guarantee you uh, every progressive in the United States is concerned. Um, and uh, I think though the Biden campaign has skillfully put forward uh, plans that deal with the virus itself, deal with the economy itself, but as they say, build back better, uh, do so in a way that strengthens our ability to solve problems for the long term. And the $2 trillion specified by the Biden campaign to invest in climate is a good example. Joe Biden today is doing a big climate event in which he's going to talk about the California fires, his, uh, his climate plan, and also how we can essentially uh, address these problems in a way that creates, uh, that's more sustainable for the country, addresses the climate change problem, and actually also reduces inequality. I think that kind of climate plan is possible because people are much more open to large-scale federal investment in problems. And that's, we've seen that. I mean, what what what's shifted the ground is that Republicans and Democrats came together in the spring and passed a massive governmental bailout of the economy. And uh, the traditional arguments of the right fell away in the face of that problem. And I think that has been a proof point for why uh, larger scale federal investments are really important. Um, so my take on you know where we are in the electorate and where we are over the next several you know fifty days is that um, you know the tectonic shifts in the United States are such that there is a majority uh, that has been opposed to Donald Trump for four years. He has never had majority support in the country. His strategy is to change the electorate by voter suppression so that a minority will can actually reflect the majority by keeping uh, the majority will uh, suppressed. And so I, that's, you know, I don't, I don't really think that we're in a mode where he's going for a big majority at this point because of his alienation amongst different groups. Um, and I think that Biden has skillfully, you know, basically assessed this kind of data that's been laid out and put forward a plan that does deal with structural problems, does deal with larger scale problems, and because Biden has been, had a moderate kind of, both he's had a moderate reputation and he was moderate in the primaries, it's his kind of large scale investments, his economic program is, uh, is, is, you know, voters are much more open to it than maybe other candidates. And I'll just say one last point, the big challenge that I think the Biden campaign has is 
in a in a in the world that we're in in the United States, where Trump has the so much media domination, is it possible for him to? Is it, it the real challenge is, you know, breaking through? And uh, Biden now has the resources, but um, you know, we need that is the I think the biggest challenge for him. People need to understand how he's going to make their lives better, and I think the debates are a real opportunity for that. And obviously. Uh, Trump will, you know, have a variety of tricks up as uh, tricks to deploy. But I think the the reality is that Biden's plans are aligned with the majority, and people are much more open. He is he has a real opportunity to create a, a large scale progressive majority. But of course, it's most important just to get to two seventy. So that I'll send it back to you, Matt. Uh, thanks, Nera. Thanks. Um, uh, I'd like to turn to Tim now, if I may. Tim, uh, your organization, More in Common, has also done a lot of work on the media environment, uh, the gap between what happens on social media uh, and in the regular media. And Nira's closing point was, you know, how does President Biden break through? How do we actually get a, in some way, informed debate among the electorate around the options facing us and the kind of opportunities and change uh, that we wish uh, to move forward? I wonder if, you know, from your research, research you have any insights that you'd like to share uh, on that matter yeah you know what what has struck me uh, this is going to sound like a strange observation but having been you know politically obsessed all my life thing that the the biggest single thing i think i've learned in the last couple of years from we do a ton of qualitative research across different countries is just realizing that the majority of people I'm I'm always stuck in a uh, the, the conversations around highly engaged people, and our conversation is basically about governments and people. It's that kind of conversation, and it's realizing after sitting through hours and hours of focus groups and talking to people that that's just like an abnormal view of seeing the world. Most people look at the world through the lens of society, and even in focus groups, mostly they're talking about each other, and that is one aspect. Sort of goes to Jerry's point around what is people's experience right now? What are they experiencing and how do we ground solutions in that, that sort of resonate with them? And that's one aspect of it. Now, what does that mean in practice? It means that actually in most countries, they're not talking about politics. Um, they're talking about each other. And as politics sort of comes into the way that they think about the rest of society, um, they think about politics, but it's not the main focus. And I think to some extent, that is something that social media is constantly pushing us in the other direction, because when, when we're in those highly engaged sort of Twitter wars, um, that conversation is always a conversation about politics and so disconnected from people's lives. Why COVID was really important was because people have been hearing a very negative story about their societies for so long partly because of social media. Social media is always elevating these extreme voices. So we see, uh, you know, 100 people do a, a rally against uh, face masks. And we think that this is like a whole huge movement of people away. Well, we ask questions about people's social distancing practices. And, you know, even in the US, it's like 83% of people are following the rules. But this is perception that this is a large number of people who are not. And what initially happened with COVID was this People saw lots of mutual aid efforts and generosity, and they got suddenly optimistic about maybe the world isn't so crazy and maybe, you know, most people around me are quite good. And unfortunately, then what cut in, I mean, in the US, particularly because of the politics of the administration, Trump's kind of constantly just sending divisive messages as how he rules. But 
but even but elsewhere as well, there was a sense of, oh no, maybe actually there's just like all these kind of reckless, irresponsible people. But a lot of that conversation was still about each other and their behaviour rather than about government. And I think that understanding that piece and thinking of the issues that we talk about through the lens of people's, of other people and how do you, in a sense, you know, how do you get behind and encourage the pro-social behaviour and the, the goodness of the large majority of people in the community, um, finding ways into that sort of conversation would actually in many ways resonate more than starting with thinking policy or politics. Jerry, I saw you raise your hand, so please do come in, follow up. I have to continually unmute myself. Um, you know, I actually, I think that that is, uh, I think that that's actually a bit reflected in the campaigns. I mean, I think Biden uh, has really talked about, you know, things like just wearing a mask and the, and I mean, he's running, he's run ads about wearing a mask and how important it is uh, to have a commitment to each other. And I, I do think that uh, we can talk about policy, uh, but if we step back, this campaign in the United States has been less focused on policy. It's much more, Biden has run a campaign that is much more about character and ethos. And it's really about unity versus division. He's used his biography skillfully, repetitively to talk about unity. Um, he, you know, I think this was a, there was a real debate in the Democratic primary about whether to try to unify the country or, you know, just marshal the base of the Democratic Party. It, you know, he really won that debate. And, uh, and so I think this this way that people are seeing each other and in, in many ways, um, the way that they are uh, affected by the division has been a central component of the critique of Trump. But it's one in which Biden is also talking about the kind of, you know, leader he'll be in, and he's, and it's not just what he's saying, but the way he's running his campaign and organizing himself to be responsible, to try to reach out to different groups, um, I think reach out to Trump voters. So I, I really, I, the, the point you make about how people are seeing themselves, I think is really reflected. Uh, I think the, is, is a really important one and one that I think the campaign acknowledges and understands. I mean, it's just odd to have ads running where a presidential candidate is just talking about what people should do to protect themselves <laughs> against the virus. I mean, there's a critique of Trump's handling of the virus, but the plan is, you know, we're just talking about how important it is for everyone to wear a mask. Uh, I mean, I think at some level, that's just an abject failure of our current president, but it also is an indication how important the virus is, how people see that, um, and how the divisiveness really bothers them. And uh, it's another kind of proof point for Biden. Thank you. Jerry. Yeah, I, I just want to pick up on something that Tim said and, and Nira echoed, and, and that is, um, you know, in the early days of this uh, crisis and the pandemic, I was struck by a couple of things. The first and most important was um, what different groups of citizens were being told to do uh, as their civic duty. So if you're a member of um, a profession where 
frankly, like all of us on this stage, uh, stage are paid to write and think and talk for a living. Uh, we were told our civic duty was to go to our relatively comfortable homes and stay there, right? And uh, if you worked on the supply chain that got people like us food so that we could stay in our homes uh, or other essentials of life in the early parts of the pan early part of the pandemic, uh, you were told, and you were paid relatively poorly to do it, uh, you were told that your civic duty was to go out and risk your health and the health of your family uh, to make sure that we could continue to do our jobs. And I think that, uh, again, people are not stupid. And in both camps, that reflects a radically different experience of what this pandemic was like. And it's going to leave a durable mark on uh, everybody involved, in particular the people who had to go uh, to work in what they consider to be relatively unsafe conditions, who just happened to be also amongst the most disadvantaged uh, and vulnerable people in uh, all of our countries. So I think that that puts a special, this gets to the point that Nero was making on the strategic, um, uh, the strategic choice that the Biden campaign has made to be almost um, uh, not quite a translator, but to make sure that those two camps, at least in the American uh, body politic, don't sever from one another and uh, to constantly remind everybody that we're all in the same boat. And uh, I think that gets to the second reflection about the experience of the pandemic. I agree with Nira and Tim. I don't think that uh, people are thinking about politics at all. And the more that politics intrudes on their everyday life, uh, the more negatively predisposed they become toward politics and politicians. And we need to be very, very careful about that. I think, um, you know, when you look at the, uh, we did the study at Eurasia Group looking at the bounce that leaders across the world got after the, the pandemic struck. And it was really interesting after a while when you tracked it a couple of months, you realized you weren't measuring the uh, support for any given individual leader within any individual country. What you were really measuring was the extent to which people within that country could transcend their partisan viewpoints in a time of crisis. So in Canada, which is uh, thankfully one of the least partisan countries in the world, uh, you could see Justin Trudeau and Doug Ford have the same approval rating with the same people in um, Ontario. But in the United States, where, as Donald Trump famously put it, when he was running for election, he could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and still get support from the people who support him. Uh, there wasn't a lot of room to grow. So I would, I, I think it's a, it's a risk, but it's an admirable strategic risk that Biden campaign has taken and trying to be, uh, uh, to use uh, George W. Bush's phrase, near a, a uniter, not a divider. Um, and uh, uh, I think it's a posture that's going to serve politicians well around the world because people have relatively little time for politics. Thanks, Jerry. Uh, look, I just like to remind our viewers that if you have a question that you also would like to uh, ask the panel, then you should go to slido.com uh, and use the hashtag recovery summit. Uh, the team and also will be collating the kind of questions that come through and we'll, we'll try to make sure that we can get as many of those to the, the panelists as possible. 
Um, we've talked a little bit so far in our discussions about how during the COVID crisis, communities came together. Jerry, you just mentioned that the the, the bump in support for leadership that uh, that we saw in the early days was a sort of indication of how countries could come together and sort of transcend partisan affiliation and, and divide. What I'd like to talk a little bit now is about uh, how the global community can can come together. Um, and uh, I, I'm going to go to Tim first, but it, it's striking to me, Tim, that in your presentation, you talked about the sort of a demand for multilateralism, but yes, also a protection for broad uh, borders. Now, if we think about this crisis, this, this economic and public health crisis in comparison to the global financial crisis a decade ago. I mean, I think one of the things that is most striking is just how divided the international community is in some regards. We've not seen the G20 or the G7 come together uh, in the way that we, we did in the early days of the global financial crisis. I think we possibly all know the reasons for that. Jerry alluded to a, a growing tension between China and the US. We've obviously got an American president who is not necessarily best fitted towards leading uh, a global response. But I just wonder how you feel we might be able to shape uh, the global politics a little more differently and more constructively than than they currently are situated. Yeah, I mean, look, there's a, the, the public sentiment is there, but there's just such an absence of leadership um, across the world. Uh, and that's obviously a consequence of the, of the current environment um, and particularly Trump's. And in fact, you know, you've got the, the competition around vaccines playing out as an example of you know, the attempted the effort in the US of Trump, you know, buying out the, um, the German firm that was uh, generating uh, one of the um, possible uh, vaccines sort of early on. Um, I mean, I think that the, the European uh, Commission has been interesting in this respect because that's the one place where uh, there has been, I think, some dynamic learning along the way. Early on, when Italy was first hit very hard by the crisis, the absence of uh, EU assistance was really palpable. The fact that there were, I mean, that's a moment when a regional institution like that just needed to have, you know, a thousand trucks arriving in Italy with the emergency um, medical equipment, respirators, et cetera, that were running short. And the absence of that was really strongly felt. And you can see the sort of 20, 25 point drop in support for the EU that's been, that has lasted in, in Italy since that moment. So I think there are particular uh, opportunity moments when uh, international collaboration can be visible and important uh, and, and make a difference. I mean, clearly some of that, there is a need for leadership as well around the uh, developing world and the, the needs of countries that have you know, much weaker health systems uh, because obviously the, the pandemic has been slower moving in many of those countries. But now when you look at the, the highest increases in infections and death rates is countries like, you know, India, for example, um, but, but many others that are experiencing increase. So there's the opportunity for difference there. But I think that the, you know, the, the absence here, I guess, is the, the kind of um, leadership from uh, a a number of uh, national leaders outside of Europe. So, I mean, you've seen it because essentially that's, you know, Merkel and Macron have have played a crit critical role in increasing the EU's engagement now. And the big uh, rescue recovery fund is going is to make a difference and it's going to demonstrate the relevance of European institutions for those national economies. But that's that's the that's where you're seeing at the moment, right? And without American leadership, it's hard to see how we we get that shift. And that's something where I guess, you know, that's why the rest of the world is, you know, hoping for a very particular outcome on November the third. 
So can I can I um, add something to this? Absolutely. Which is, you know, I mean, I think we can look at trend lines um, and uh, try to assess them. But you know, I, I the the global trend lines that Tim talked about, you know, are really actually quite rational <laughs> when you think about a pandemic. I mean, the problem with the pandemic. I mean, we're experiencing this in the United States, but it's a pandemic is hard to control uh, at the state level. You know, there, it doesn't it doesn't like it doesn't like it ignores state borders. And ultimately, the real challenge of pandemic is that it will ignore global borders. I mean, you cannot have free movement of people and goods and contain a virus. So. I think people are actually quite rational about this and, and think about this in very logical terms. And at the same time, it does make, when a pandemic is raging, it does make sense to close borders, just like it makes sense to close down. So, I mean, you know, whether they do the borders in the right way or you're only applying it to in the right way, but like it actually, you know, I have this conversation in the United States because we similarly see this data, which is that people are as supportive of immigration reform today, in fact, more supportive of immigration reform during comprehensive immigration reform that moves undocumented people to a path to citizenship as they were four years ago or ever. I mean, it's higher today than it's been in the past. Yet people do want strong borders. And I think the pandemic makes that clear. But I think that's also why I think it's really important that policymakers and political leaders recognize that the pandemic is a kind of altering event in the minds of people. I mean, to me, it has the ability to be something along the lines of a Great Depression and uh, in terms of really altering the consciousness of people. And rec I mean, people recognize that the federal government response and the country's response to a virus directly affects them in the United States, right? So, um, I mean, I think these trend lines make a lot of sense and we and we should acknowledge them. And I, you know, from a global perspective of how to move forward, it is a, you know, it is, a, Biden has offered sharp contrasts on all these issues, sharp contrasts on the vaccine and effective use of the vaccine and a global effort around the vaccine versus just a, high, a national approach to the vaccine, supporting the WHO, making sure even in this moment, you know, making sure that the federal, the United States is actually helping the globe deal with uh, the pandemic, not just doing it on ourselves. And I do think the policymakers are thinking through, you know, not policymakers, you know, people in the, you know, Biden campaign and people who are likely to help him govern thinking through how do we, um, you know, how do we, how do we in the post, in the pandemic or post pandemic phase of this, uh, prove out to the American people why, inner, you know, why strong global governance and strong American leadership makes sense. And it could be, and if, you know, if there's an administration, if you, if there's a Biden administration, you see a global leadership on the virus in stark contrast to Trump's, which is effective in reducing the spread of the virus around the world in a way that can actually prove out to both the American people and the globe. You know, on one level, the American people can see the role of American leadership actually helping and in the globe, can help restore American leadership as well. Thanks, Nira. Jerry. 
Uh, okay, I'm unmuted. I couldn't tell whether I was unmuted there or not, Matt. Um, I, I, I agree with uh, uh, the points that Nair was making for sure. I think that the uh, one of the interesting questions, um, because there is a lot, uh, obviously, that would change with change in the administration. Uh, but one thing that probably won't change, at least in direction, if not in tone, is uh, the, 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 um, the transformation of the relationship with China. One of the things that I noticed this spring was, or in, in the late part of the spring, early summer, was the, the motion, the Senate motion to censure China on Hong Kong passed 100 to nothing. And Nira, you're a closer uh, attendant to Senate resolutions these days than I am, but I'm not sure anything has passed the Senate 100 to nothing um, in, in recent history. And uh, I think that that is going to be a very particularly challenging for Canada, obviously, uh, how that uh, disaggregation of the U.S.-China trade shakes out. Um, but on the other hand, and, and this is something we had direct experience with right after the 2015 election because of its proximity to the Paris Agreement uh, and the, the final negotiations for the Paris Agreement, the most constructive table for the U.S. and China to talk was on climate change. And of course, given that they're the two largest emitters in the world, there's not any hope of a serviceable agreement coming out of COP26 that doesn't involve both parties. So it's interesting that you've got this push-pull relationship in the international community. There's no, I mean, I'm a full subscriber to my firm's uh, uh, house view of the G0 world. I think it is a long-term secular trend that was 25 years in the making post-Cold uh, post War, and it's not going away anytime soon. But at the same time, and again, Nira made this point, it's pretty clear that the institutions we invented in the post-war period needed renovation before we got to this point. And the reason for that is obvious. It's because the world that they were um, invented to structure and govern doesn't exist anymore. And uh, uh, we're going to have to invent our way out of this problem. And we've done so in the past uh, to great success. There's no reason to believe that we can't do it again. Uh, these problems are multilateral in nature and they're gonna require multilateral solutions for as, uh, uh, as much negativity and criticism as the Paris process got and the COP process in general gets. There's nothing that the whole world has agreed to do together other than the Paris Agreement in the past 10 years. So I think that there's, there's cause for optimism and in particular, uh, maybe one uh, unintended but positive outcome of the, the COVID crisis is the fact that COP26 was put off for a year, uh, that it's hard to believe that a new Biden administration or an incoming Biden administration would have been able to turn around the aircraft carrier that is the American ship of state and time to come up with a coherent bargaining position uh, and maybe there's a silver lining in that cloud. Thanks, Jerry. Uh, now, I'm not sure if you want to come in, but I al I'd also like to raise uh, an audience uh, question as well, trying to be as inclusive as possible. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so we have one here, which is given the likelihood of a disastrous and long post-election transition period in the US, which I think is assuming that Biden has won, uh, what must governments around the world do to prepare people for that chaos? 
So, so I'll, I'll take that. Uh, I, I just to to Jerry's point earlier, I'll say one uh, just two words about uh, just a, a brief sentence about China. Um, I think that Jerry is right that there is a um, that there is a you know there's a growing consensus about the challenge of China and the United States, and um, you know public concern about. Uh, like this, whether the international system is really fair and whether China has worked that system. But there's a deep difference between how Biden would approach that and how Trump would, which, you know, obviously Trump's approach is unilateral and Biden's approach is actually to think through how you use a multilateral system, how you use allies, how you kind of engage the world in, uh, in addressing the challenge of China. That's not an easy task, but it's obviously very different. And I think in a way it goes to, in the second point, which is there have been two international agreements over the last 10 years that actually had teeth. One was Paris or had impact and the other was the Iran deal. And I think that, uh, I think the proponents of the Iran deal are gonna be the same people who are thinking through how you use multi multilateral relationships to affect positive policy in a way that uh, diffuses problems, not exacerbates them. So I, I think that China is a concern, it's just not the same kind of concern, or it's, it's the approach is very different. On the question of the transition, I will say CAP is very focused. <laughs> uh, just to share with this audience, Center for American Progress is doing something this fall, which we've never had to do in election cycle, which is to game out all the ways in which Donald Trump could uh, uh, use processes before, during, and after the election to uh, change the outcome, meaning, you know, ranging from his use of immigration enforcement, essentially federal troops in urban zones to manipulate, I mean, I think, I hope, you know, maybe the story has gone global about the manipulation of the post office um, to, you uh, I think we have real challenges with the possibility, a real, possi a real possible um, rise in white nationalist violence around the elections. And there are answers to all these problems. Uh, there's, there's steps that can be taken. Um, but I would say there's a very high recognition that it is possible that on election day, on election night, Trump, uh, will look like he's winning the popular vote or winning the electoral college and will you know will still lose when all votes are counted and and um, you know what I would urge governments is to recognize that that would not be an accurate sense of who the leader of the United States is and so I think it is actually really important for governments to wait till votes are counted. And obviously Trump will not want to do that. I assume Russia will acknowledge him immediately, but it is vital for democracies not to acknowledge uh, a leader until one is actually rightfully chosen. Um, having said that, I also think on other levels that we've been dealing with the press and communicating to them the changed circumstances in order for them not to call the election or influence the election. Um, and there's a lot you know, there's a lot going on now, which is states are trying to count their mail ballots early. So the, the, the you know, it kind of lessens the window of the Trump ability to do this. So I think there's a lot of ways that we're all countering these things. But if the question is what, you know, if this, the precise question is what governments should do, governments should wait until we have 
an elective, you know, we have a clear result from all the votes coming in and those, all the ballots will not be in, in the country until uh, as late as a week later. So, um, uh, you know, other countries have experience with this, United States, states have experience with this, but the whole country and the world is going, you know, is in my view, has to recognize that change environment in the United States. So your answer is sit tight and just make sure, wait for every vote to be counted. It's going to be a bumpy road, it sounds. Yeah, I mean, I think that Trump will absolutely, I, my, you know, just to spell out our, our worst fears, I think he's, you know, he's training essentially you know doing a nod and a wink to like these these white nationalist violent groups because he could use them as tr as essentially shock troops to intimidate mail ballot votes so you know that's full banana republic that's something that we're all planning around jerry i saw that you wanted to come in and, and also uh just transition as well at the end of your response to this to a second question from the audience, which is that, um, you know, we spent a lot of time at events like this in the past talking about um, populism, the rise of populism. Um, you know, what's your view on how the populist movement has interacted with the pandemic? Is it more or less relevant? And what should we be looking for as we exit in terms of the, the return of uh, or a resurgence of populism? It's a great question. Uh, and I think the short answer is that it's different in different countries, but I'll give myself a minute to run the background program in my head about that while I answer the first question. I think Mira's right that you um, uh, discretion is the better part of valor in recognizing the outcome of the election in any national capital. Uh, interestingly, and I'll put in a plug for my own organization here, every year at Eurasia Group, we rank what we think are the top risks to the geopolitical order in January, and this is pre-COVID, or as COVID was becoming part of the nomenclature. Um, and this year, for the first time in the history of the firm, 22 years, we said that the biggest risk on planet Earth was uh, whether or not the U.S. presidential election would be seen as legitimate. It's the first time it's there's ever been a U.S. domestic politics risk uh, ranked number one in, in our uh, our opinion. And I think the more you dig into this, and most people watching this will realize this, but a, a lot of more casual observers of politics don't, that U.S. national elections are not really national elections. There are 50 statewide elections, of which about six to eight matter in any given year. And in this year, for my uh, money, the three most important states, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, have uh, Democratic governors and Republican houses. So you can imagine what's going on day to day uh, to fight over who gets to certify the outcome of the election and what uh, 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 measures are being taken by both sides to prepare for what is essentially a Florida 2000-like um, toss-up on election night. I think that uh, uh, with some notable exceptions. I think that the media has done a fairly good job, Nira, of uh, explaining this process to the American public, again, with some notable uh, exceptions. But the sheer number of things that could go wrong um, makes it, you know, we've taken, our house call is that Biden has a 65% chance of winning the election. But we now put an asterisk beside that because of the sheer number of unique and unprecedented factors at play 
uh, in the election between now and the time all the votes are counted. On the second question, which I think is a really important one, and I'd appeal back to uh, what I said and what, what everybody said at the beginning of this panel, I think that uh, right-wing populism preys on people who feel economically disadvantaged and uh, uh, isolated from their communities. And um, they that that political philosophy teaches people that the appropriate response to those circumstances is to get angry. And um, we have to be very careful on the progressive side not to feed into the conditions that create um, uh, a, a receptive or fertile ground for that message. I, I think that there's, there's been some really hopeful signs, notwithstanding the undercurrents that Tim has um, identified in, in his excellent research. Uh, the uh, AFD is at uh, cyclical lows in Germany. Um, you've seen uh, uh, populist support, support abate in many countries. On the other hand, uh, Bolsonaro is enjo enjoying his highest approval rating since before COVID. So, you know, it's, uh, it's going to be a challenging environment. And I think it just goes to show you how fluid things are and how important it is to stay really close to what people are enduring in their day-to-day -day lives. So I, I'd like to respond to this as well, if I can, just really briefly, which is to say, um, I think in the United States, this is really uh, the, the election is kind of a make or break moment on this question of populism. I mean, I've said this for years. Matt has heard me say it, I'm sure, and, and probably too much. But um, if Biden is elected, he has an opportunity, you know, he has opportunities and real challenges. But the I, I, I consider this moment uh, similar to a 1932 moment in the United States, which is you face a fracturing of politics unless you have a a, a president who can unite the country and solve problems. And if if Biden is unsuccessful as president, uh, I think it's possible we will get worse than Trump after four years or, you know, likely four years if, if Biden is not successful. And if Biden is successful, I think it is possible that you have a realignment in which uh, you know, already in, in Trump's base, he's seen some erosion of white non-college women um, who voted for him four years ago, shifting away from him. It is possible you can have a realignment in which this, at least some group of white non-college voters who formed the base of Trump's support move away from Trump uh, to Democrats basically around response to the virus. The virus has been one of the reasons why seniors and white non-college women have moved to Biden in the United States. And if he's able to actually address, you know, contain the virus, make a vaccine work for people, have government demonstrate effectiveness, I think he could, you know, shift the kind of paradigm around government. And I'd say the reality is, like populism feeds on ineffective countries, right? And in the United States, we essentially had a Republican party that stifled the ability of Barack Obama to do anything year in, year out for years. I think it gave rise to Trump and an effective government in the United States can, can reduce the power of populism, just as I think uh, the, uh, an effective German government in response to the virus is now you see a waning of, of populism. And, and, you know, I'm speaking in really broad terms, there's counterexamples sort of everywhere, but 
I think at a, at a meta level, um, you know, we have the ability here to actually answer the, the, the I mean, if the reason why people are believing, if young people in different countries are thinking government doesn't work for them and it's driving them to more extremes, then the answer to that to me is to have a government that does work for people, that does prove out that you can actually solve problems and reduce that level of interest in the extremes. Thanks, Nira. Um, delivery matters and, and governance matters. Uh, I think that's a, that's a very valid point. We all, we all agree. Tim, I'm going to come to you uh, to share a few thoughts on, on whether we're going to see a resurgence of populism after the pandemic, how the populace has responded to the pandemic. I'd like you to, to be relatively short because we've only got two or three minutes left. Um, and I'd like you to end your remark with the sort of one takeaway that you think progressives watching this should, should, should hold in their minds as they think about how we build that. And then I'm going to go to Jerry and Nira uh, to ask them about what, what their one takeaway is for the audience before I close. So, Tim, over to you. Yeah, I, I think uh, France is quite instructive as a country where there is deep dissatisfaction with the government's response, but that has not translated into increased support for the far right. Um, and they don't feel very relevant there right now. But uh, I think where I think it's wrong to centre your analysis in where we are right now. I think that what we have to look look to is where where is the resentment narrative emerging, and it won't come immediately, right? Like this is what will emerge over a longer period of time as the economic fallout takes place. Uh, you know, where is that? And I I would say it's very connected to people's moral values around fairness and that a resentment about an unfair outcome. And maybe that'll be if we don't deliver for working people who have been on the front line, and if there's a group or groups that are seen to have benefited, um, like the contractors, for example, who are making a lot of money out of the um, COVID contracts. But I think that that's the thing to watch is the resentment narratives. Uh, more broadly, just in terms of the, the larger uh, question of you know, the big takeout, you know, I, I think in some ways the best takeout is from, from our work and in this moment is it's really good not to trust your first instincts, um, you know, your assumptions, because one of the insights around the information environment we're in, liberals, progressives, um, is it's just really disconnected from uh, the majority of people, their experiences. And so you can think that, that you know, there's a big, big sentiment for change when it's much more guarded than that, for example. And I think that having the a, a humility and self-doubt and not thinking that the way that we see the world is the way that others see or, or experience the world is especially important now when there's just like a lot of very specific shifts happening in public perceptions all around the world because we're in very unique times. Thanks, Tim. Wise words. Jerry. Oh, I, I substantially agree with that. I think that the most important lesson to take from this time is the same as the most important lesson to take from every time in politics, which is to pay very close and detailed uh, attention to where people are and what they want. And uh, uh, deliver policies that help them improve their own lot in life and the, that of their families and their communities. I think that people are understandably really anxious. I don't think the polls, I think Tim is making a good point, I don't think the polls are particularly reliable uh, in the best of times uh, on top line issues. I think they're really unreliable right now because one feature of anxiety is that people change their minds quickly and repeatedly. 
So the lived experience of people and understanding that as deeply as possible is um, uh, the, uh, the light of the stars and not the light of every passing ship. Thanks, Jerry. And Nera. Uh, first, I just I want to say thanks uh, for this conversation because I've, I've learned a lot and it's helped me think through different challenges. Uh, I, the most, I, I think the thing I would leave is um, this conversation is, is really at the end of uh, what I said before, which is, you know, and what you helpfully elucidated, which is, you know, governance and performance really matter and have direct results. And, um, you know, I don't, I think people are absolutely not living their lives through politics. Uh, I think in the United States, that's a bit different because everything has been consumed by politics. And I think actually a lot of people like to go back to not thinking about politics all the time. But, um, but most, you know, I think we have, we have, we have the ability to, uh, if you think of two global trends here through the coronavirus, we have the ability to, um, you know, realize the progressive goal of making government truly work for people. People are more open to government and that is a government action than they've ever been. On the other hand, we have real trends of social media, dis created by social media of deep chasms of distrust which I think are very undermining of democracy and collective action. And whether we can, you know, move through that, those hurdles to actually realize progressive gains is I think a, a central challenge for the next year, uh, unless we're in, the, in a second Trump term and uh, then, you know, I don't, all bets are off. <laughs> oh. That, that's that's a sobering thought to end on. Um, but Nera, thank you so much for, for taking the time to join us this morning. I know there's a lot going on in progressive politics in the US and, uh, and our thoughts and best wishes are, are with you, obviously, over the next 50 days. Jerry, Tim, thank you also for joining us and thank you, the viewers, uh, for taking time to join us in this conversation. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. I think it's been a great way to, to start off uh, this summit.